If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and find your way to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our series through um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you find that, um, or I guess if you don't have to turn, you might be swiping. But um, we continue this series uh, that we've entitled Peace Through Grace. And basically looking at the book of Ephesians, we find our identity in, in Christ. Paul is laying out the basic guidelines for what our lives look like. And, and as such, what then should we, we do in response? What our lives should look like? In, in response. And so really understanding that we're only secure in our identity when we realize that it rests in Christ and that's where we get that peace. Well, if we want a peace in life, peace meaning that this world and what it, it includes and, and hits us with matches nothing because we know our identity is secure in Christ and who he is and what he did versus what we did. And so today, the, the last couple of weeks we spent talking about Paul's prayer there for the Ephesians. Um, today we kind of get into the basic, what is the gospel? If you've heard gospel and, and you hear it often here, but, but what is it? And today we're going to find what the heart of the gospel is, the reality that, that that explanation is, what that means and so as we look through that, we'll see this. So if you'll follow along, uh, we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 10, but then just focus on a, on a few of these verses today. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you, were, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If y'all pray with me real quick, we'll ask the Spirit to guide us through this passage today. God, we, yeah, we come before you today and just acknowledge, just acknowledge our inadequacy to understand your truth. The, just acknowledge the fact that without your Spirit guiding us through this truth, that we will, we will twist it and we will change it to suit our desires. And God, today we just pray that, that your Spirit reveals truth that it would be your truth, not what we or what I have made it to be, but your unchanged truth that, that we focus on and that our lives would change because of it. And we just thank you that you didn't leave us alone, that you revealed your words to us and that you gave us your spirit to teach us that truth. 
And we just thank you for this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you can see in, a, in just a simple reading of that passage there that, that there's a drastic transformation that Paul describes. Um, a few years ago, I was able to uh, go to Berlin with a, a, another church. We taught an English day camp, um, which was kind of funny because they all spoke English anyways, but we were teaching them English. Um, and then what was cool is we stayed almost right in the center of Berlin, and we actually stayed on the old east side. And we were in walking distance from both of the main squares or, or places. There's the, the both are pretty famous. We were close to where the Brandenburg Gate was, right in the, the heart of Berlin, right surrounded by all the embassies and stuff like that. But it was cool because you could, you could either take the subway over to this one place. It's called Alexander Platz. And um, it's right by where the old big communist tower was in, in Berlin. But if you walked back you would notice that all the old buildings, you could see on the east side, everything looked the same. It was the typical communist type thing. You'd see, you'd still see all the old communist cars. They all looked the same. But what was happening is they were transforming that. Is you, the buildings looked the same, but they'd have a new facade. And they were revitalizing that part of Berlin. And it was just this transformation that you could see happening that was slowly changing because as more people moved into that area, they didn't want to move into the old they want to transform that and create it. And that's what cities do. We create change. But, but it's not just cities. You see that our entire culture is obsessed with transformation. You can't almost go anywhere without seeing something about the way you can change your life. Whether it's through working out or eating right or anything. You can't go anywhere. If, you, if you're ever on Facebook, that's almost all that it is. It's about transformation. How are you going to change yourself? And the, the, the problem with that. Is basically every other way that that doing, our culture selling transformation is just packaged differently. But the problem that they're saying is how that you can transform yourself. And what we do, instead of taking that just in the physical sense, uh, that you can change yourself, yes, I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't. If obviously, if you eat right and you work out and you do that, your body will change. But we relate that transformation to the spiritual also and think then that we have some ability to control our spiritual condition. That, that we can change inwardly who we are. And so, and, that, and that's the transformation Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a physical transformation. He's talking about a spiritual one. When, when we read this first part of chapter 2, we see a, a, a spiritual transformation taking place. He's outlining the heart of the gospel in these verses. And, and we shouldn't miss that. We shouldn't miss what takes place here. And that spiritual transformation, another way to say it, it's salvation. What, what happens in salvation? Who, who does the work of salvation? And this is what Paul's talking about here. Um, Michael Horton, the pastor, author, he says, the extent of which we are unclear about who does what in salvation is the degree to which we will obscure the gospel. And see, and that's what we're, we're going to talk about today is who does what in salvation? This spiritual transformation, who does the work? Who, who does the work? Because if we get that wrong, then everything else in our life will be off center. If our focal point on salvation or the spiritual transformation is off, then the trajectory of our life is off. We'll, we'll, we'll think we're running forward, and yet the further we go, the farther the separation is. So really, what we're going to do today is we're going to divide this passage. We're going to talk about verse 1 through 7. We'll get the rest of it next week. But in the passage, in the, in the passage here today, verses 1 through 7, there's really two main sections. The first being your life or, or life without Christ. 
and then our life with Christ. So first, um, we'll talk about our, our life before Christ, without Christ, because we see that Paul hits us with this understanding that no matter how hard we try, we cannot transform our spiritual condition. We cannot do it. So our life before Christ, there's really two types of people in, in, in the world. And, and actually here today, both are probably represented. There's, there's people that have heard the gospel explained. They, they've heard it. They've heard this story, but, but I haven't responded in faith. They've heard it. They've talked, but their life... They haven't responded in faith. So, so basically, they read stuff like this, and this is you, you're reading this, and you're like, how's this going to help me? It doesn't make sense because you haven't responded in faith. The Spirit hasn't, hasn't moved in your life so that you respond. So you're sitting here thinking, what does it matter? What do I have to do in my life first to go to Christ? And then the other type of person is someone that has responded in faith. And a lot of times we approach a passage like this and we think, okay, we're, we're looking at our life before Christ. That doesn't matter anymore. I'm past that part. We don't want to look back. We want to look forward. So why do we have to look at this and think of our life before Christ? Because that's no longer us. But see, the reason both people represented need to see that is because it's critical to understand who we really are. In a passage like this, when we look at what Paul's giving us, he's really giving us our identity, who we really are. Because if we don't know who we are, then there's no way to move forward. Even if you've already responded in faith, we still have to know who we were before that so that we can then move forward. Okay, so look at verses one through three with me again real quick. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so when we see this and we look at, okay, what was our life before Christ? He, he doesn't waste any time. And you were dead. You were dead. This isn't a physical death. This is a spiritual death. We were dead. Not, not just kind of, we were hurting. We were, we were dying. No, we had already died. There is no life in us, spiritually speaking, before Christ. Yes, we, we live physically. We have life, obviously. But spiritually, we are dead. When Christ came to us, we were dead. There's not life support. We're not on life support needing someone to take us off. No, we had actually already died. And that's what Paul's saying here. When in his commentary on this, John Calvin said, he does not mean simply that we were in danger of death, but he declares it was a real and present death under which they labored. So what he's saying here is, again, he's speaking to the, to the Christians at Ephesus. These are, these are people that have responded that he's talking to. But he's, he's having them recall what they were like. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were already dead. You were living life spiritually dead. There is no life in this. There's no way you can misinterpret that verse. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We can't overlook that fact. We can't, we can't it's uncomfortable, but we can't overlook that. We were spiritually dead. But why? Because the trespasses and sin, 
our trespasses and sin. Both words here basically mean the same thing. They're just different ways of saying sin. Uh, some people would, would explain that by being sins of omission and sins of commission. Omission being you don't mean to. It's not a conscious thing, but yet you do. Sometimes we're, we're selfish and, and we just do stuff, but it's, it's sin. But then there's also commission, ones that you active, you know you're doing and you do it anyways. And so some would say that when he says dead in your trespasses and sin, he's talking about both types. It's not just one. It's ones you don't mean and ones you mean. Both words basically still give us the same result, spiritual death. We are separated of God. There wasn't anything for us, and that's concern. That's a cause for concern. But, but what happens then is we read this and we think, but wait a second, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, I might mess up or not, but I'm better than some of these other crazy people. I mean, that's, that's how we are. And so we object to passages like this because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to find that we're completely dead. Because if you're dead, you're helpless. There's nothing a dead person can do for themselves. And so we say, I'm a good person. I don't know, maybe Paul's speaking here is kind of like a, maybe just, this is just a hyperbole. He's just exaggerating. He's trying to get our attention. But no. We see that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And then he explains why. If you, look at, if you look at verse 2, in which you once walked, remember he's recalling, once walked, he's telling them this is how you lived. There's been a change in, in the people that he's directing this to, but once you, you once walked, following what? The course of this world, and then following the prince and the power of the air, or the spirit that's at work now in the sons of disobedience. And so both of those actions leave us spiritually dead. One, we followed the course of this world. We just lived our lives. We walked in the course of this world. And because of that, we're incapable of relationship with God. And, and also, you see that, that in that, there's this captivation by the world. And, and you see that there's a captivation in that because we also, who else do we follow? Following the prince and the power of the air. He's talking about Satan. The prince and the power there, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So basically what Paul is saying here is you once walked in this, you were dead in your sins because you walked in, the, in, in this world. You walked the curse of this world. There's no difference between you and the world. You were completely captivated. And, and not that you were only completely captivated by the world, but you were falling for the schemes of Satan. You were, you were following that and you didn't even realize it. In verse 3, he goes further. It says, among whom we all once lived. And see, what, what's cool about that, first part of verse 3, among whom we all once lived, is he includes himself here. A lot of times when we see stuff like this, we have a tendency to think, well, it's easy for someone else to tell us that. But do they actually believe it themselves? Do they really say that? And that's what Paul's saying here, is that we all, he's including himself lived in the passions of our flesh. We all carried out the desires of the body. We all were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Everyone is included in that. Paul himself. And that's, 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 it's, it's comforting that he doesn't exclude himself. Because if he did, then could we trust what he says? If all of a sudden everyone else is bad and you're not, there's a problem there. But that's not what Paul's saying. We all once lived. And, and really, and this is, 
this is interesting with Paul because a lot of times we focus on Paul. We think of him as Saul, as the one that was going to persecute the church. That, that he was the, the main one persecuting the church. But why was he persecuting the church? Because he was very religious. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, he was born into that. He was taught by the best. And so when Paul says that we all once lived in this, he's saying that there's not a religious philosophical system that's going to get you out of this. Because if there was, Paul would have been excluded. Because he did everything he was supposed to. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew what it was. He was a leader in them and yet still says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all were dead spiritually. We all walked in the desires of the flesh by nature. By nature, they were called children of wrath. This was a condition from the beginning that by nature were children of wrath. And, and some people have a hard time with that. They're like, no, people, people aren't necessarily born sinful. And I think people that, were, that, that say that haven't had kids, not because kids are just bad, but you see that inherent sinful desires in them. From the time that they can do anything, it's selfish and it's focused on them. And so we're all by nature children of wrath. And see, people find that hard to swallow. They want, don't want to admit that we're in such a grave situation because then we're hopeless. Because that goes counter to what society says that you can transform yourself. Well, if I can transform myself, but I'm dead, and you understand this, then I can't. And we don't like that. So we try to explain it away. We, we try to say this, that he's just, he's just making a point. He's exaggerating to, to kind of wake them up that these Ephesians were surrounded by such this society that was against the gospel that he's trying to recall this change to make them respond. But it's not just hyperbole, like we said earlier. This is literally who we are. And if this is the case, if our life without Christ is spiritual death, then, then salvation somehow still has to come from somewhere else. See, we don't do that. There's often people, what they've tried to explain salvation uh, being is that like a man on his deathbed and he was critically ill and, and he needed medicine to survive and then the doctor brought it in, the nurse set him up and all this stuff and they'll say they, they brought him there but he still had to open his mouth. He couldn't do anything else but he had to open his mouth and receive that medicine. Or they'll, they'll use another example and say that there's a, a man in the ocean. He's struggling to keep his head above water. He's treading water. He's already started to sink a couple times. But, but God, seeing that, he throws that life preserver. And, and God being God, he throws it so well it lands in the guy's hand. But he still has to grip it. And see, what the, those stories are comforting. But if you put that in verses 1 through 3... They don't, they, don't, they don't mesh. Because if we are dead in our trespasses and sin, then we can't do anything. We can't do anything. So not only would, we, would it be better to say, oh, the man is struggling in the ocean and, and he can't move his hand, it'd be better to say, no, he's already died and sank to the bottom. We're not kicking on the surface. We've already succumbed to the sea. We've already died. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And as such, we can't do anything to change our situation. 
We get this false understanding that somehow there's a hint of goodness in us. That we think maybe there's just part of us that is good. And there's part of us that's good. But if that was true, wouldn't society be getting better? Wouldn't some people avoid the negative aspect and still remain good? And if there are, where are those people? Because you could make a pretty good argument that society's not actually cycling worse, it's, or cycling better, it's cycling worse. It's not that we don't have the capacity to choose, it's just that we're not going to choose God. We're going to choose the world because that's who we're following. We're captivated by the world. So if we stopped there, it's really not very good news, is it? If we stopped there, it's like, okay, that was great. Why did I come listen to this? Right? Because it, it's, all it does is just beat you down. And that's what it is. The gospel, when Paul lines out the gospel here, we're, we're brought with the fact that the gospel is first bad news before it's good news. It's bad news because we see that outside of Christ, we are dead. And that's not a positive thing. That's not a positive thing. So if we stop here, the gospel stopped there, then we're hopeless. And God's not worth following because we're spiritually dead. So what happened? So now we see our life with Christ. We see our life with Christ. And what we, we see is in this life after Christ or life with Christ, we see two of the best words, probably the best two words in all of Scripture. Look at, look at verse 4. But God. But God. How wonderful is that? Here he is. Paul just opened up the fact that we are dead. By nature, we're children of wrath. We deserve God's wrath by nature. There's nothing good that we can do. We're just like the rest of mankind. All of us are included. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. Those are the two best words in Scripture. Those are the two best words you can see. Why? But God. Look at, look at the rest of verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see that? Paul doesn't leave his readers in this hopeless situation because God doesn't leave us in that situation. There's always a but God in the gospel. God saw us in our death. He saw that we were spiritually separated from him and did something. But God, that's something, if you underline your Bible, you should underline that. You should highlight that. That's something to remember because you were dead. But God, you can't, if, if that doesn't excite you, then you have to ask yourself why. So you can look at that. You could just read verse 4 and 5 over and over and over again. If it doesn't well up with excitement every time, I don't, know, I don't know if you understood verses 1 through 3. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had, she loved us. By grace we've been saved. And so why would a homeless, uh, I mean a holy, blameless God see people that have rebelled against him, people that are spiritually separated from him, why would he see that and do something? What, what does that mean? Why would he do that? And, and, and Paul outlines this. We see that in these verses. First, we see that God is what? He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy. This is compassion. It's, it's this pity. He sees us and has pity on us. He's rich in mercy. 
He sees us and has compassion, so much so that he sent his son to die for us. In mercy, he's rich in mercy. That's why he sees us spiritually dead and does something. We also see, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, he loved us. His mercy, when combined with his love, is what motivated him to send Jesus. So you see, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. In 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He is rich in mercy. He is love. We often, we often get that backwards. We, we think that love works, that, that love is what works, but it's actually God that works so that love does. Love works because God did. Because he is love, love conquered. It's not because there's this random love and then God used that, and it's not because he is love. If we haven't submitted ourselves to the whole gospel, then we really don't understand what love is because we don't see it in this light. So we forget to see it because of God being love is why we even try to understand this. And then finally, we, we read that God acted on our behalf because of his grace. This is unmerited favor. It's similar to mercy, but because of God's mercy, he's rich in mercy, combined with his love, he chose to extend us his grace. Look at verse five again. While you were dead in your trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. While we were dead, while we were dead, God sees us because he's rich in mercy. God loves us because he is love and God extends his grace to us. But here we see in verse five, Paul again is using the resurrection of Jesus as to reveal why we have life. While you were dead in your trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. He's talking about the resurrection. When God gave Christ's life, also those who are in Christ have life. It's critical to understand that. That's how we are not dead in our trespasses sins because of Christ. We can't miss what comes before made alive in Christ while we're still sinners. See, that's the, that's the part. We see this, oh, we're made alive in Christ. Maybe it's because we did something. And, and we, can't, we can't afford to do that. And in Romans 5, Paul says it in, in two different times. Romans 5, 6, he says, while we were still weak at the right cry, time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's while we were still weak, while we were still dead. In Romans 5, 8, just two verses later, says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's not an improvement before Christ died. The improvement comes after it because it's in him. Christ died so that we might have life. Christ is the reason we have life. Christ is the but God. But God, you see Jesus. God's mercy and love and grace are the reason we have Christ. He's rich in mercy. He is love. He has grace towards us. So what? He sends us his son to die the death that we haven't, that we deserve. By grace, we've been saved. And, and it's, it's critical, that last little part right there. By grace, you've been saved. So it's critical to understand that because sometimes we, we feel like grace, grace is talked about so much that we think that it's this, this thing that we can grab onto, that, that if we do life right, that somehow we'll gain more grace from God. But that's not what Paul says here. 
It's by grace you have been saved. Grace is the instrumental cause of salvation, not something to grow further into. Grace is the the catalyst to salvation. That's not something we can gain more of. We have grace. It's not this quantity to be obtained. It's something we've already been given in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because he was rich in mercy. Because he loved. Because of the great love he loved us. God's power through Jesus Christ is why we have a new life. That's what he's talking about in verse 5. Made us alive. We went from death to life. Why? Because God was rich in mercy. There's nothing, there's nothing you can look at this and say we did anything positive in this situation. There's, there's nothing. So we have new life. That's what verse 5 is. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only by God's power working through Christ do we have new life, but we have eternal life. He's raised us up with him. Resurrection again. And seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is eternity. We're seated with him. We're co-heirs along with Christ. This is, this is amazing stuff because the world tells us you have to make yourself better and the gospel says, no, Christ did. That's a huge, huge drastic change that we have to remember. We have to understand the but God of the gospel. It doesn't say but us. It doesn't say but Kyle. It says but God. God saw us and had compassion. He showed us mercy. He loved us. He extended grace to us. We did nothing but provide our sin, thus being spiritually dead and separated from, incapable of doing anything. But, but what time, often we, we hear the news of the gospel and we just looked at it and we have this thought, there's, if, if that's true, there's no way God would love me. Yeah, that's great. This is just generic stuff. It's, it's not real personal in the sense of what we actually are, but if God knows me, there's no way he would love me. There, there's no way that God would love me, what I've done in my past. There's no way that he would do it. I have to fix myself. He couldn't love me with what I've done. And actually, that's right. That's right. Because who we were, God couldn't love us then. There's no way God could love us when even our righteous deeds are considered filthy rags. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It's because his wrath was poured out. See, God is, is just, and if he's, if he's holy and he's just, then justice has to be served. And it was. God's wrath was poured out on our sins. It just happened to be poured out on his son instead of us. That's why he can love us, because we're not still dead. He sees us in Christ, and, and he will raise us up with him. And seat us with him. Obviously, this seat us with him in the heavenly places, that's alluding to something that's going to happen. But that's hope that we have. So the justice was satisfied when God poured out his wrath on Christ on the cross for the sins of us all. It was satisfied. So he can love you despite who you used to be because in Christ, he no longer sees that. He sees the righteousness given to us by Christ. So he delights to extend his love and his mercy when we are united to Christ and actually gives us 
the power to do so. And that's where the Spirit comes in. The Spirit gives us the power to respond to that. Because we wouldn't choose God. The the power of the Spirit in our lives opens our hearts to respond to that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. But then the question is always, so what does our life look like then? What What are we supposed to do in response to that? And we'll actually look at that next week. When we look at verses 8 through 10, we'll get into that. What do our lives actually look like after this radical transformation? Okay, we get that we were changed, but what does life look like? We'll talk about that next week as we see what the daily workings look like. And that's what we get through 8 through 10, that, that when we respond to this, when we hear the gospel, that we actually, our lives change. But how do they change? How do we treat people different in light of this? We'll talk about that next week. So I hope that you'll, you'll join us again and talk about that. But remember, the gospel is first bad news and would remain bad news if it wasn't for the but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us while we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. And that is what's so amazing about the gospel. It's because it's God doing everything that we needed done, yet we're incapable of doing.